Well, good morning. Welcome to our weekly Bible talk. Uh, I'd encourage you to get your Bibles open to Exodus chapter 9. We're going to be talking today about the plague of hell. Uh, I think for the sake of time I won't do a ton of review today. I know that I've done that uh, before in a lot of these Bible talks. And uh, hopefully by this point you're relatively familiar with the storyline of the book of Exodus anyway. Uh, you know, these are the plagues that God is using to humble Pharaoh so that he will let the people go so that they might uh, head on their way to the promised land. We've talked about a lot of these plagues and about the lessons that the Lord has to teach us through them. Today we're going to be talking about the plague of hail, uh, which as you're going to see as we read it, was more than just normal hail. You know, if you think of hail as these little tiny pebbles of ice, uh, this was uh, very different than that. Uh, much worse, much more damaging. But let's pray and then we're going to jump right into it. Pray with me. Oh God in heaven, you are the great and awesome God. You are the only wise God. All the gods of this earth are dead idols, but... You, Lord, made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. We thank you for the way that you have given us your Son, Jesus, to be our Savior. We thank you for the way that he saves to the uttermost all those who come to you through him. We thank you for the way that he gives us his Holy Spirit, and for the way that the Spirit convicts us and renews us and transforms us. And we pray that your Spirit would have a very powerful work in our lives right now. Give us illumination, conviction, faith, guide us as we try to understand this section of Exodus 8. Help us to sense how it applies to our lives today. Through Jesus we pray. Amen. Now, if you're looking at your Bibles, the plague of hail, uh, it's, it's rather long. It, it goes from verse 13 through 35, which interestingly is one of the longer accounts of the plagues. Some of the plagues only cover a handful of verses, you know, maybe a half a dozen verses. For some reason, this particular one covers uh, over 20 verses. So instead of reading the entire thing straight through like I typically do, I think I'm going to read maybe a chunk at a time, make some comments, a chunk at a time, make some comments, a chunk at a time, and make some comments, and hopefully we'll make our way through the entire plague of hail today. Uh, if we don't, uh, I guess you can just go home and read some more on your own and reflect on it on your own. I, I don't want to spend two weeks on the plague of hell, um, but that's where we're going today. Let's begin verse 13. And like I said, as we go, I'm going to pause from time to time and make some comments. Then the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. Now we've heard that little phrase over and over and over again. And this is the seventh plague, so at least seven times Moses has said this to Pharaoh, and at least seven times Pharaoh has hardened his heart and said, no, I'm not letting the people go. And there have been occasions where Pharaoh sort of initially said, okay, wink, wink, you can go a little bit out of Egypt and uh, make some sacrifices, but then quickly he would change his mind. Um, and we're going to see him do something similar in this particular plague. But again, verse 13, let my people go that they may serve me. Uh, that is interesting there. I think for the sake of time I won't explore that too far. But there's a connection between freedom and service. The reason why God frees us is not so that we can live like libertines, but so that we're freed to serve him and to serve our neighbor. Uh, there really is no sort of uh, anarchy in God's universe. We like to imagine this, that anarchy is an ideal, uh, that if I just didn't have any rules and total freedom to do absolutely anything, then life would be fun, then life would be good. Uh, that's simply not the universe in which we live. If we had pure anarchy, meaning that we can just do anything we wanted, um, people would be dead all over the place, we'd be destroying ourselves in sin, and uh, that, that's simply not the world in which we live. Freedom is for the purpose of serving, serving God, but also serving my neighbor. You see that hinted at here, uh, it's clear in the New Testament. What are the, what are the two great commandments? You know, it's really one commandment, but the great commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as 
you love yourself. If you have been saved by sin, freed from sin, that's the reason for your existence, to love God and love your neighbor. And what I hope you get is that it's out of that that we enjoy the richest, fullest life. Don't look at serving your neighbor, serving God as this sort of painful drudgery. No, those are the paths to human flourishing. And to the degree that you serve God, to the degree that you serve your neighbor, uh, therein you'll flourish and give yourself what is best. But anyway, we see that here. Verse 14, For this time I will send all my plagues on you, uh, yourself, and on your servants and your people, so that they may know that there is none like me in all the earth. We've talked about this before, but the plagues affect not only Pharaoh, but his entire nation. And again, they're suffering due to the sin and the arrogance of their leader. I think I talked about that last week, but that principle is still very much true today. If you get some sort of arrogant, foolish leader over a nation, uh, the entire nation can suffer, even if the entire nation is not as wicked as the leader is. Uh, That's just, again, the dynamics of the universe in which we live, which motivates us to pray for godly, uh, wise, God-fearing leaders, because their decisions, both for good and for ill, will affect the entire nation. Um, And again, I know I've talked about a lot of these themes already, but you see these themes coming up over and over and over again in Exodus. The reason for this is so that the people will know that he's the Lord. There at the end of verse 16, that they may know in all the earth. There is definitely an evangelistic push here, and not only for the Israelites. God's not only interested in saving the Israelites, but even in the Old Testament, he's desiring to save people from every tongue, tribe, and nation, including the Egyptians. And when we get to it, it'll be probably quite a few uh, weeks from now, but eventually when the Israelites leave Egypt, they go with a mixed multitude, uh, including some God-fearing Egyptians who evidently uh, left the nation because they believed that the Lord was God. But anyway, verse 15, For now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. See in that verse there the mercy of God. Uh, God is withholding the judgment that they deserve, the judgment that he could have given them, uh, but he's only giving just enough as to wake them up and to humble Pharaoh. Uh, You know, that's kind of a fascinating thought to think about. We don't, you know, as bad as life gets, we're still not receiving uh, what we deserve. And if God wanted to, if God unleashed his wrath, I mean, we would be turned into ashes like in nanoseconds. Uh, So see the mercy of God everywhere. See the restraining uh, God not giving us the wrath that we deserve everywhere. And even in these plagues that we've been talking about here in Exodus. Some of them are are horrific. Uh, You know, dead frogs in your bed, being covered with boils. I mean, these are truly miserable things, and yet these are not the full wrath of God unleashed, which if that's the case, that tells us something truly about the, the horrors of hell. If hell really is the wrath of God unleashed, which the Bible teaches it is, uh, that is horrific. I mean, that's, take all of these plagues, combine them together at the very same time, and that's not even yet as bad as hell will be. Hell is utterly horrific. It's utterly uh, horrifying. Um, But at the same time, it is really only what our sins deserve. So thank God for his mercy and not giving us what we deserve, but let that wake you up to flee from the wrath to come. If if your hope is not in the Lord Jesus, uh, you will be experiencing something that's worse than all the plagues put together eternally. And yet Jesus offers to be a loving, gracious Savior from all of that wrath, if you'll but call upon his name. Uh, So as we see the wrath of God displayed in these plagues, allow that to remind you of hell, uh, what we deserve, but allow it to also remind you of the cross and how Jesus saves us from that wrath through his death and resurrection. But anyway, verse 16, But for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power 
so that my name may be, may be proclaimed in all the earth. Now that is a huge verse. And you'll know if you've read Romans 9 that Paul takes that verse and uses it to explain why God hardened Pharaoh's heart. There's the entire argument there in Romans 9. God has mercy on whom he'll have mercy. He hardens whom he hardens. God's got the freedom to do that. We don't like that. We, you know, in, in our flesh we kind of don't like that idea, but who are we to answer back to God? God's got this freedom. But Paul importantly points out that the reason why God does things this way is so that, again, verse uh, 16, so that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. There's always sort of an evangelistic motive here, an evangelistic goal here. God wants his glory proclaimed to the nations. He wants, uh, and, and truly at the end of history, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Now, that does certainly not mean that everybody's going to be saved. You know, don't think that Jesus' death is so glorious that everybody who's ever lived, whether or not they believed in Jesus or not, is going to be saved. The Bible does not teach that at all. But there is nonetheless this evangelistic heart that God has that's evident even in these plagues, that's evident even in Romans 9, and hopefully we're catching some of that as well. Uh, Hopefully, and, and let's pray for this for one another, pray this for me, that God would give us this desire that his name might be proclaimed in all the earth. That increasingly people from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation would not only hear of the Lord Jesus, but embrace the Lord Jesus as their Savior in this life so that they're saved from the wrath which is to come. And yet at the same time we do believe that when Jesus comes again he will uh, cause many knees to bow before him, uh, before they are cast into hell, if that makes any sense. Anyway, Verse 17, you are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. Behold, about this time tomorrow I will cause very heavy hail to fall, such as never has been in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Now therefore send, get your livestock and all that you have in the field into safe shelter. For every man and beast that is in the field and is not brought home will die when the hail falls on them." Uh, so again, here's the prediction of the plague, uh, life-threatening, not, not life-threatening, uh, truly deadly hail. It, it's not like they might die. There's the promise that if you don't get the livestock out of the field, they're going to die. So this is some sort of horrifying hail. I remember in my lifetime, uh, I was camping once when I was like, let's say 16, you know, I don't remember exactly how old I was, um, and we were in upstate New York, and we started getting hail the size of golf balls. Uh, it, was, it was shocking. I thought at first somebody was throwing stones at me, but then you start looking around and you're like, this is actually hunks of ice. It was unbelievable. I remember people went outside and collected them and say, they, they put them in their freezer and they were going to use them as ice cubes during the summer uh, for drinks and stuff like that. I don't know if they ever did, but it was, it was very, very unusual. Uh, but that hail as big as, okay, uh, golf balls is maybe a little too big, but about the size of quarters. I mean, we, we had, it, it was big hail. Uh, th- that was still not killing the livestock. And I don't know if, you know, if you had a herd of cows or something like that, I'm, I'm sure that they would not have all been killed by these uh, pieces of hail that was the uh, size, of, uh, size of quarters. So whatever this kind of hail is, it's utterly shocking, utterly uh, unheard of if it's wiping out entire herds of livestock. But nonetheless, that is what God is doing, and it shows you what God is capable of doing. God could give us this kind of hell every single day, and our sins deserve that. But again, God is so merciful that most of the time we have pleasant weather. Uh, maybe think on that for a time. Uh, again, due to our sin, we, we could experience just horrific weather every, every single day. Uh, you know, We could experience horrible hurricanes every single day, and horrible tornadoes every single day, and lightning strikes you know, nonstop because of our sin. But most of the time, truth be told, our weather is, is rather pleasant. Uh, you know, even on rainy days, it's it's nowhere near as horrific as we deserve. See in the mercy of God, not not giving us anywhere near what we deserve. 
Also, see the mercy here and sort of warning them, get your livestock out of the field. Uh, I already wiped the livestock out once back in a previous uh, plague, if it was, uh, yeah, at the beginning of chapter 9. Uh, but this time, whatever's left, get that back home, lest they all die. Now, this raises the question, where did these livestock come from? If in the beginning of the chapter, all the livestock die, how then here at the second part of the chapter are the livestock going to be killed by the hail? Weren't they already dead? You see what I'm asking? Here's something very important to recognize that a lot of people don't kid. We believe that there was an extended period of time that these plagues are taking place in. Um, it's not like plague one happened on Sunday, plague two happened on Tuesday, or Monday, and plague three happened on Tuesday, you know, whatever. I kind of got my days mixed up there. Uh, that's not how it is at all. I was reading one commentary that speculates that roughly two years took place from between when he turned the Nile into blood until the final plague. Two years! And again, we don't read it that way. We, we tend to read just one event, boom, 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 right after another. Um, realize the Bible does this often. Oftentimes there are periods of not a whole lot going on in between this event and that event that the Bible doesn't record, and that's okay. Uh, you know, for example, when you read the Gospels, you know, you might have a healing here and a demon possession here. Don't think that those are necessarily all happening on the same day or in the same week. There might be weeks going by when not a whole, is, whole lot is going on and it's not recorded, and that's okay. Uh, God, the Bible is recording the essential events to know. Not every event that actually took place. So also with these, you know, coming back to the livestock, I think God wiped out the livestock at the beginning of chapter 9. But let's say there's, what, four months, six months between the beginning of the chapter and this plague of hell. Certainly the Egyptians could have gone to other nations and bought additional livestock. Uh, you know, it's, it's totally conceivable to fit this in. So don't, don't see that as a contradiction in the Bible or anything like that. But anyway, verse 20. Then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. A couple of things I want you to notice there. First, like I said, we're starting to see the way in which some of the Egyptians are coming to saving faith. That term, fear the Lord, that is basically Old Testament terminology uh, for saving faith. The, the entire Bible teaches salvation by grace through faith alone, but truth be told, the Old Testament uses different terminology. Uh, part of this goes back to the Old Testament being written in Hebrew, New Testament being written in Greek, Old Testament primarily to Jews, New Testament you know, to Jews, yes, but also to all the nations. But the way in which the Old Testament is going to talk about salvation by faith alone is terms like they feared the Lord, or they took refuge in the Lord, or you know, in the Psalms, you know, coming under the shadow of his wing, language like that. But it's the same idea, that I am a sinner, but I run to Jehovah, you know, ultimately Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, uh, to be rescued by grace through faith. You're starting to see the uh, Egyptians doing that here. And again, as we go, I think you're going to see more of that taking place. The other thing I want you to notice here is the connection between faith and works. Uh, true faith does evidence itself in good works. Now, we're not saved by good works at all. Our good works, even our best works, are still filthy rags in God's sight, but true good works will affect your behavior. No, but true faith, I'm sorry, I misspoke there. True faith will affect your behavior, and if it doesn't, it indicates that you don't have true faith. Now, just think of this illustration. God promises, hail is coming, it's going to wipe out your livestock. There are two responses, two possible responses to that threat. You can believe it or you don't believe it. 
If you believe it, what will you do? You go get your livestock out of the uh, field so that they don't get obliterated. If you don't believe it, you don't worry about it and you go do as you please. So also we are saved by faith alone. Faith in the premises of God. Faith specifically in Jesus, God's Son. Our good works do nothing to contribute to that. Uh, You know, again, like Luther famously said, the only thing we bring to our salvation is the sin that makes it necessary. All of that being true, If we do have true faith that Jesus is the Son of God, that will have an impact on our behavior. Not perfectly. You know, none of us are going to be perfect in this life. God is in the process of progressively transforming us. Praise praise Him for that. And yet, if there's not the slightest impact on your behavior, uh, you you got to rest assured that you don't actually believe the gospel. Uh, You know, if, if you don't at all have an inclination to seek to love God, seek to love your neighbor, seek to put sin to death, seek to fellowship with the people of God. Again, far from perfect. You know, please don't it all hear me saying that you know, true Christians are perfect. We're a million miles from it. And yet, it, it, it kind of only makes sense that if I do believe the gospel, that's going to have an impact on behavior, on my behavior. And if it doesn't, I don't really believe the gospel. Uh, you're going to have to kind of think through this and work through this on your own. You know, I don't know your heart. I don't know uh, your life or h- how it's really fleshing itself out. But don't miss the reality that true faith does change our lives, though we're saved by faith alone. Uh, one of the I think it was Luther again, he said something like, you know, we are saved by faith alone, but true faith is never alone. It is accompanied by a degree of life change. Think on these things and examine yourself accordingly. Verse 22, then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward the heavens so that there may be hail in all the land of Egypt, on man and beast and every plant of the field in the land of Egypt. Then Moses stretched out his staff toward heaven, and the Lord sent thunder and hail and fire ran down to the earth. Now that there also tells you that this hail was unique. You know, like I said, I saw some big hail when I was a kid, but it was never accompanied by uh, fire falling from heaven. So whatever this was, this was uh, really horrific, and it explains why it's killing all the livestock. You know, normal hail might, you know, bang them on the head pretty good, but it's uh, not probably going to kill everything. But if it's some sort of weird hail mixed with like napalm or something like that, like that, then it starts making sense. Verse 23, and the Lord rained down hail upon the land of Egypt. There was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail, very heavy hail, such as never has been in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. The hail struck down everything that was in the field in all the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And the hail struck down every plant of the field, every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, there was, was there no hail. Again, you see how devastating this was? And I remind you of something we talked about last week. The economic consequences of these plagues would have been just unbelievable. Uh, so, you know, he's wiping out all the livestock, wiping out the harvest, killing servants. I mean, this, this would have just uh, absolutely bankrupted Egypt, which if you, if you know anything about Egyptology, they, would, they were one of the glorious kingdoms of the ancient world. I mean, even today, some 4,000 years later, the, the uh, pyramids and the sphinx are still around and whatnot. And yet this would have just absolutely devastated them economically. Uh, real quick aside, I was talking at the, uh, my, my Navy Reserve Unit Center a couple of months ago, and somebody asked me, they were, they asked, I don't know how they got on this topic, but they were talking about the history of Egypt, and they said the weirdest thing happens in the history of Egypt. They're just flourishing, they're rich, they're building pyramids, and then all of a sudden something happens, and, and, and they just go down the tubes like almost overnight. 
And he didn't have an explanation for that. And at the time, I didn't really know what to say. But in retrospect, I wish I had said, you know, there's an event in the Bible that really explains that really, really quite well. Let me tell you about it. Um, but truly, this would have absolutely devastated Egypt, and they would never have been the same after this event. Uh, economically, numerically, militarily, I mean, th this really was kind of kind of the, the bottom falls out of everything, but it shows you the lengths that God is willing to go to uh, to humble us, to lead us to repentance, uh, so that increasing people would fear the Lord. You know, God is not afraid to take away money, loved ones, health, if he needs to, to bring us to repentance. And he does that because he loves us. Knowing him is better than money. Knowing him is better than loved ones. Knowing him is better than having a comfortable, safe career or something like that. And if God, is, if God needs to take those things away, he will, but again, only because he loves us. Uh, again, like we talked about, you see the distinction there. The land of Goshen, uh, nothing bad is befalling them. That's where the people of Israel lie. Um, and it is kind of fascinating, fascinating to imagine what this must have looked like. You know, because hail, typically it doesn't fall, uh, you, you know, in... in, in clumps. You know, if, if hail is falling here on Muncie, it's going to fall on the entirety of Muncie. So also, if hail is falling on the entirety of Egypt, you would expect it to fall on the entirety of Egypt. And yet, somehow God, because he controls nature and, and the weather and whatnot, he's able to almost create these pockets where the hail is not falling, and that's exactly where the people of Israel are living. Again, showing the way in which he has a special love for, protection for his people, which in this particular day and age, we understand is primarily spiritual and not so much temporal. All right, let's see if we can hit these final verses. Verse 27. Then Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, This time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Now you do see the way in which Pharaoh has come a long way. At the very beginning, he's saying, Who is the Lord that I should obey him? Uh, here he's actually using the covenant name of God, and he's recognizing his own sin, and yet... He's, he's not converted. Don't, don't make that mistake. We don't think that Pharaoh was ever truly converted. And that there is sort of a scary reminder that you can make some progress. You can learn some true things about the Lord. You can even come to realize that God is more powerful than you are, but that's not the same as true saving faith. We talked about this in the sermon on Sunday. Uh, the demons claim to, you know, the demons believe in God and shudder. Uh, the demons can perform signs and wonders. I mean, there's a lot of sort of uh, spiritual type things that Satan and the demons can do, but those are not evidences of saving faith. So also, you can use the name of the Lord, you can use a lot of Christian-type language, you can maybe even be affected by some of the things that you see. You know, you could go to a good church service and be affected by somebody's baptism testimony, but that's not the same thing as saving faith. You know, again, saving faith is this humble turning uh, from rebellion to rely on Jesus. That, that's what real saving faith is. And again, you see Pharaoh sort of modeling uh, kind of a kind of a a, a, a fake faith, if that's the right term, like a, like a fake repentance, uh, using the Lord's name, claiming that he's sinned, claiming that the Lord's in the right, but again, make no mistake, he's, he's not truly repenting at all, and we're going to see that. Verse 28, plead with the Lord, for there has been enough of God's thunder in hell, I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. Moses said to him, as soon as I have gone out of the city, I will stretch out my hands to the Lord, the thunder will cease, and there will be no more hell, so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. Uh, that, that there is a very important phrase. It comes up in the Psalms, the earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof. Uh, that's one of the implications of there being one God. Uh, the fact that there's one God means that God owns the entire universe. That God owns the entire universe means that he is worthy of the entire universe's worship, devotion, obedience. Uh, this is why even atheists 
uh, owe God their allegiance. An atheist might think, like, I don't even believe there is a God. Why, why do I owe him my allegiance? Well, whether you believe he exists or not, uh, he did make you. And as your creator, you owe him your allegiance, whether you don't even believe in him or not. I know that's kind of kind of mind-bending and hard for some people to get their minds around, but that's why uh, everything that exists ought to be giving God worship, praise, obedience forever, uh, because the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Um, and that's why he's got the right to give us commands. You know, it's kind of like if I build a barn, I've got the right to put in that barn what I want. If I want to put, you know, a motorcycle in there or, a, you know, a, a bunch of cows in there or whatever, because it's my barn. So also, because this is God's universe, he makes the rules. And again, who are we to answer back to God and to tell him what's up? Anyway, um, verse 30. But as for you and your servants, I know that you do not yet fear the Lord God. Uh, somehow Moses can tell that his, his repentance is not real, that he's just kind of faking it for the time being. Uh, verse 31, the flax and the barley were struck down, for the barley was in ear and the flax was in bud, but the wheat and the emer were not struck down, for they are late in coming up. That's another indicator of how much time has passed. Uh, you know, this particular event is happening relatively early in the harvest time. Later in the harvest time, the rest of the stuff would have been wiped out. But again, by connecting these sorts of little details, you can figure out how much time has passed between the uh, entirety of the plagues. Verse 33, So Moses went out from the city from Pharaoh and stretched out his hands to the Lord, and the thunder and the hail ceased, and the rain no longer poured upon the earth. That tells you there there was rain accompanying all this. So there's hail, there's fire, there's thunder, and there rain. there's rain. I mean, that, that would have been really ter terrifying. But, verse 34, when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. So right there, somehow, again, how, how Moses knew this, we don't know. Maybe it's just because he knows Pharaoh's reputation. But Pharaoh's like, uh, you know what I said about letting you guys go? I, I didn't really mean it. You're not going anywhere. Um, and again, you, you, you see the way in which, even though Pharaoh is so incredibly sinful and arrogant, God is still showing him mercy. Uh, God could have just poured out absolute fire. For, you know, he could have done what he did to Sodom here. Uh, but again, he's working, he's he's, he's I, punishing, I guess, is the right word, but he's not giving Pharaoh, even Pharaoh, what he deserves, uh, but he's breaking his will because, again, that's what's loving here, and that's what would bring him glory. Verse 35, So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people of Israel go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. He's doing what God predicted he would do very at the very beginning. Remember, before Moses even arrives in Egypt, he says, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. He's not going to let the people go so that I can display his glory. This is simply the fulfilling of what God promised would come to pass. I think we talked about the whole Pharaoh, the hardening of Pharaoh's heart thing before. I realize that bothers a lot of people. Uh, if you want to explore this more, I preached an entire sermon. Go look it up on our, our uh, sermon audio page on the hardening of Pharaoh's heart where I went into uh, as great a depth as I can go intellectually understanding this and how it works and what lessons we can learn from it. Uh, but, but if that's of interest to you, check out that particular sermon. Um, in conclusion, how might we pray this back to God? Can you think of requests, praises, anything of that nature to pray in light of this passage? Well, like we've talked about, let's praise God a lot that he doesn't give us the full wrath that we deserve. You know, again, he, he's just sort of like giving us a touch of wrath, like like little, you know, yes, the fires in Maui, horrible. Yes, hurricanes are horrible. Uh, yes, you know, earthquakes where thousands of people die, horrible. But still, that's not even remotely close to the wrath of God we deserve. Uh, so thank God for his mercy. Also, let's pray that God wakes people up to flee from the wrath to come. Again, all of these little touches of wrath are designed to wake people up so that they flee from the day of wrath that's going to come in the future when people are cast into hell. So pray that God wakes people up.
Uh, let's thank God that he's got this missionary heart for his name to be proclaimed in all the earth, and let's pray that God gives that same missionary heart to us, that we would more and more want to see his name proclaimed in all the earth. Let me pray and we'll be done. Pray with me. Oh God in heaven, your wrath is a terrifying prospect. Uh, to imagine fiery hail falling from the sky, killing livestock, obliterating uh, plants, and, and doing just billions of dollars of economic damage. Lord, that's, that's shocking. And yet, Lord, that is uh, not even a, a, a taste of what we deserve for our sin. So we thank you, Lord, for your mercy and not continually giving us the wrath that we deserve. We thank you for the way that Jesus has saved those of us who believe from that wrath. And yet we also shudder at the prospect of hell where your wrath is unleashed uh, to, the, to the ultimate degree. Uh, please, O oh Lord, cause a mighty fear of God to descend upon this planet. Please wake people up that they might sense that there is a day of wrath coming. And we pray that they would flee from that to Jesus. And we pray that more and more missionaries, evangelists, preachers would preach the everlasting gospel and that people all around the world would be saved. Lord, we've talked a good bit about the sort of the missionary heart that you have desiring your name to be proclaimed in all the earth, desiring to save people from every tongue, dry people, and nation. Please give us that same missionary heart that we might be delighted to give and pray and send and go to see all the nations be glad in Jesus. Lord, bless now the remainder of our day. Give us opportunities to love one another, to love you. It's through Jesus we pray. Amen. Thanks so much for tuning in. Have a great day.